This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Welcome to Beyond the Ballot Box with me, Dashran Johan. This is What's Politics, where we explore and break down political concepts and ideas. Recently, the world watched South Africa take Israel to the International Court of Justice for their genocidal acts in Gaza. After hearing presentations from both sides, the court sided with South Africa. While there's still a long way to go before the case fully concludes at the ICJ, the court has issued a preliminary order barring Israel from further acts of violence against Palestinians. The fact that Israel isn't complying is hardly surprising. What's interesting is Western mainstream media's coverage of the whole ordeal, which is to pretty much twist the court's ruling to suit their narrative and protect their interests. Which is what we're going to be discussing on the show today. As always, my guest is Assistant Professor Peter Beatty, political economist and political psychologist at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. Peter, welcome back to the show. How are you? Thank you, Dashran. Doing well. How would you characterize the Western media's coverage of the ICJ hearings on Israel's actions in Gaza as well as the court's ruling um, following the hearings? Uh, I would say, in a word, it is duplicitous, mm. misleading. Right after the decision was uh, released, mm. uh, it was after a class of mine, so I just read the the whole decision before looking at any of the, the media coverage. And I was quite surprised because... Uh, you know, when I saw two judges had dissented from the, the majority opinion, I assumed that one of those two judges must be the U.S. judge. Turned out, no, even the uh, the, the U.S. judge uh, ruled along with the majority uh, to dismiss uh, the Israeli government's procedural uh, issues or complaints uh, and to find that there's a prima facie case for genocide occurring. Uh, and also to order uh, the Israeli government to cease uh, killing uh, members of the protected group, which would be Palestinians. So I read the the uh, decision with with some, uh, not exactly surprise. I mean, I, I figured that a, a ruling like this was somewhat likely, but I, I thought that at least the U.S. judge would dissent. Uh, but, you know, it was very much a, a ruling in favor of the, the South African argument. Uh, and it was only then that I uh, turned to media coverage and was uh, quite... Surprise, and I'm someone who's not exactly Pollyannish about uh, the, the the U.S. media system, but this uh, I didn't anticipate. Before we talk about the coverage of the fallout of the hearing, let's talk about the coverage of the hearing itself. Um, how much yeah. coverage did South Africa get um, when when South Africa were was presenting their case versus the coverage that that the Western media um, had when Israel's side was presenting their case? Yeah, I haven't seen any comprehensive media analysis. Mm. Someone, you know, a researcher looking at major outlets and and just recording empirically the exact amount of coverage. But I have uh, read some anecdotal uh, reports. Uh, for instance, the BBC playing at least part of the Israeli defense, but none of the uh, South African uh, sort of prosecution case. Um, and I would imagine that that uh, repeated itself in the U.S. media system to some extent in the in the form of more coverage for the, the Israeli defense to the charges rather uh, compared to coverage of the actual charges. 
Um, it got to a, a point where you had that video um, of a bunch of uh, well-known actors, including some from Game of Thrones, who uh, recorded themselves just reading out the South African uh, uh, case because uh, the media system in, in Britain, principally the BBC, was not providing adequate coverage for that case. Right. Um, do you, when you hear these things, right, and that, you know, actors like, you know, from Game of Thrones, they had to essentially read out, um, you know, the, the the results of the hearings or what what the court had said and, and uh, also read out South Africa's arguments because, um, you know, may, mass media, whether it's in the UK or even um, in the US, they weren't adequately covering South Africa's side. Um, you said you hadn't... Um, you know, really studied this part of it in depth and look at analysis. But assuming that an anecdotal evidence is true, um, I, are you surprised? Um, did you expect a more impartial coverage of the hearings or at least just show both sides, just screen both sides? You know, you don't have to give an analysis, but just at, yeah. at least, you know, screen both sides of the argument. Uh, were you surprised that they didn't? Yeah, the, that report about the BBC did uh, surprise me because I, I thought that the uh, the journalistic value of objectivity and impartiality would lead them, instead of just covering one side's argument, to rather instead uh, tend to ignore the, the the case overall and perhaps provide like a very short summary of mm. both sides' arguments, but not uh, give too much attention to the the, the case. The thing that surprised me was the uh, the coverage of the Israeli argument in the absence of similar coverage for the South African argument. You know, essentially, what the court has ruled now is that um, South Africa has a very strong case. Um, and essentially, the, the the court ruled in favor of South Africa. Um, what, how has Western media framed the decision by the ICG? Funnily enough, the Washington Post's first headline, uh, right, the first headline that they they wrote to describe the story on the decision, was something along the lines of uh, the ICJ uh, prohibits the IDF from killing Palestinians but does not order a ceasefire. Mm. And that is actually a 100% accurate way of uh, characterizing the decision. It's still a little misleading because the South African legal team didn't ask for a quote-unquote ceasefire. That wasn't uh, the language that they used, uh, probably because I've, I've uh, heard from some legal scholars that uh, uh, a ceasefire would be considered binding on two parties. And of course, Hamas is not a state and as such, it's not a state party to the, the convention. And so there was an argument that the court didn't have jurisdiction uh, such that they could order a, a ceasefire on two parties. But what they did in the actual decision was order the effect in, in common English, you know, the, the, the way that most people use the English language. They're not thinking of the word ceasefire in terms of international law. They're just thinking of it in kind of a, a, a colloquial sense as stopping firing, right? Right. That's exactly what the, the the court ordered because they uh, they ordered the Israeli government to take all measures within its power to prevent the commission of the following acts. Uh, they had a whole list, but prominent among them were uh, killing Palestinians and causing serious mental or physical injury to Palestinians. So, for you know, average people, for for you know, 
just the plain language of the ruling is a ceasefire imposed upon the Israeli military. They didn't use the uh, the South African language of uh, desisting from all military operations. So, you know, constructively, the IDF would be uh, within the, the bounds of the ID, ICJ decision to move troops around or move materiel around or have a military parade or, or whatever, whatever is in uh, the category of military operation that does not include killing or serious injury. Uh, but that, of course, is not the way that the, the mass media reported this. Uh, the Washington Post headline has since changed to reflect the, the the rather duplicitous framing that I've seen across the English language media, and this isn't just you know the the kind of center right uh, or or center left media, uh, even the the Wire in India, uh, the the Guardian I guess would be center left, uh, reported the same fundamentally misleading uh, uh, sort of summary, which was. The court tells the Israeli government not to commit genocide, but doesn't order a halt to the war. That's the right. kind of general uh, headline and general analysis you see again and again and again, which is just it's fundamentally misleading. It's not accurately reporting the content of the decision. Do you think that there is a sort of politicization of the word ceasefire or perhaps even a, a sort of co-option by the mass media in the sense that there is a hyper-focus on the word ceasefire and the purpose of that hyper-focus is to just, you know, do what they're doing now, to twist narratives that unless the court came out and literally said the word ceasefire, you can just continue business as usual. You can come up with word salads to just um, justify your actions and then say, no, but the, did you hear the court use the word ceasefire? Yeah, I, absolutely. I mean, the only real question in my mind is whether that's done in, in bad faith or in sort of ignorant good faith. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, the in the majority of cases, it's just ignorant good faith because I really don't get the sense that a lot of people actually read the decision. Uh, it's only uh, some 29 pages. Uh, I thought it was actually longer than that. I was confusing the, the length of decision with the length of uh, the Israeli and South African uh, 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 oral arguments. Um, but it's just if, if you actually take the time to, to read the uh, court order, which is at the, the end of the decision on page uh, 24 and 25, uh, it's just untenable to claim that it doesn't order a, a ceasefire in common, uh, it's common English meaning. Right. Um, the first order is, and I'll just uh, uh, read it out, uh, taking out the, the kind of extra uh, legal language so that the, the core meaning is, is clear. The state of Israel shall, in relation to Palestinians in Gaza, take all measures within its power to prevent the commission of all acts within the scope of, and then it refers to the, the part of the Genocide Convention uh, that is uh, relevant there. And then it lays them out. In particular, killing members of the group is the first one. And the second one is causing serious bodily or mental harm to members of the group. So if if the IDF can, can uh, do any sort of military operation that doesn't involve killing or injuring, then the ICJ has not prescribed that. But any military operation that does run the risk of killing or, or seriously injuring, that is uh, completely disallowed under the, the plain language of this order. 
I should also mention, you know, I've seen some some uh, even uh, left leaning commentators right. uh, misinterpret this decision. Hmm. So it's 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 important to to understand from the beginning that the court at this stage was never going to issue a final judgment on whether or not the Israeli government is guilty of genocide. At this stage of the the proceeding, the only thing that they were uh, allowed to do under their own uh, 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 rules is to decide whether there is a prima facie case for genocide. That is, is the evidence such that uh, on first look, there is a plausible case of genocide occurring? And the the court said, uh, yes, there is. That's all that they were ever going to do. The second point is the the court's orders, you know, like anything in international law, there is no enforcement mechanism. There is no, you know, international police that can go to uh, whatever country is is ordered to do or cease doing whatever a, a, a case is about, right? So the, the only force of uh, international law in general and this ruling in particular is as a form of soft power, is as uh, a, a manner in which uh, the world can recognize that there are very plausible allegations of the most serious crime in international law being committed, and then to follow the, the court's uh, ruling. If you have a, a fundamentally duplicitous or misleading uh, media coverage of that order, it basically cuts the the, the soft power force at the knees. It, right. it cripples the only force that this ruling was ever going to have, given the fact that international law is not self-executing and it doesn't have a, a police force to enforce anything uh, under international law. On the show with me today is Assistant Professor Peter Beattie, political economist and political psychologist at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. We'll continue our discussion after the break. Keep it here on Beyond the Ballot Box, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to What's Politics on Beyond the Ballot Box. I'm Dashran Johan, and with me as always is Assistant Professor Peter Beattie, political economist and political psychologist at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. We're talking about Western media's deceitful coverage of South Africa taking Israel to court. This conversation will also be available on podcast, so do subscribe to us. You can look up Beyond the Ballot Box on the BFM app, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. So, Peter, according to an analysis done by The Intercept, Western mass media, and I quote, disproportionately emphasised Israeli deaths in the conflict, used emotive language to describe the deaths of Israelis, but not Palestinians. The Intercept also found that publications such as the New York Times offered lopsided coverage of anti-Semitic acts in the US, while largely ignoring anti-Muslim racism. What do you make of that? Well, it, it's not terribly surprising to me. I mean, the the literature on uh, uh, political economy of media, media studies, uh, past content analyses that have been done on a wide range of issues have found that there is a, a, a very clear uh, a sort of rightward or pro-government bias, uh, especially on issues of foreign affairs. 
So this this latest uh, study, actually two studies, one was on the uh, major newspaper coverage, the other was on uh, cable news coverage. Mm. Uh, those results are not terribly surprising. They're in line with past practice in the U.S. media system. And of course, what it does is it contributes to uh, ignorance more than anything. I mean, you're as you're as an average uh, media user who's trying to apprise yourself of what's going on in the world by reading the the Times or you know tuning into MSNBC, et cetera, is that you're getting one side of the of the story, um, one narrative, one explanation, but you're largely being kept ignorant of other narratives, other understandings, other perspectives. And that is just that has been the fundamental problem of the the U.S. media system, uh, you know, for a very long time now. So just some added um, information from the study, um, you know, according to the um, analysis, the word slaughter was used in reference to Israeli deaths versus Palestinian deaths in a ratio of 125 to 2 the word massacre in a ratio of 60 to 1. Anti-Semitism, uh, anti-Semitism was ma- mentioned 549 times, while Islamophobia just 79 times. Now, Peter, I want to circle back to something you mentioned earlier, which you said that, you know, th- there is this thing, whether is it bad faith or, you know, uh, or just ignorance in good faith. Or you could say, you know, is it ignorance or is it evil. Now, mm. do you have said that in most cases, perhaps it is just good faith, but complete ignorance on, on the part of those who are reporting it, the journalists, so on and so forth. But Peter, one have to ask, when we look at these types of um, stats, you know, how imbalanced it is, how clearly one-sided it is, and we look at how widespread the coverage of this conflict has been. If if you want to put aside the past several decades and just look at you know whatever that's been going on since October, whether it's social media, whether it's the global news networks from Al Jazeera to news networks in the global south to even smaller independent um, news agencies in the West, such as Breakthrough News, Novara Media, so on and so forth, I mean, I'm wondering, the people at the mass media, don't they have enough mm-hmm. information at this point that it, it no longer can be just ignorance, that it, if you're doing something like mm-hmm. this, it has to be deliberate to protect your own interests, your own state narrative? How how do you see it? Well, I would. Uh, this is a great question to bring in some uh, key points from political psychology. Mm-hmm. I guess the first one I would start with is uh, the whole curse of knowledge bias, that our brains are not very good at understanding that what we have learned about the world or about anything is not universally shared. We, we Our default kind of way of thinking is as we learn something, we tend to assume that everyone else already knew that, and we're just catching up with the rest of the world as we learn things. Right. It's a, it's a, a fundamental uh, uh, bias and it blinds us to to the uh, the absolute importance of the information that we do uh, absorb, that we are connected to, to the knowledge that we do have, and the fact that not everyone else has uh, gathered the same knowledge or or has the same information. So when you look at the the overall global media system, including all outlets, it's certainly unarguable that. Uh, 
there is a an ample amount of of information for one to understand uh, the, the the Palestinian view or the kind of global majority uh, view of the the uh, genocide in Gaza, but that availability doesn't mean that people are actually taking advantage of it. And so mm. I try to put myself in the shoes of uh, a you know senior New York Times reporter, let's say. Uh, first of all, if you're put on this story by the, the editors, you're probably already going to be someone who uh, tends to side with the Israeli government. That is, right. you've absorbed a lot of, of information about the pro-Israeli government narrative. Your understanding of the overall conflict is very much likely to be biased on that side. Once you have that understanding and all of the information that it, it comprises, uh, the the you know going back to uh, the justification for Zionism at its very birth, the the uh, persecution and violence against Jewish Europeans that led them to want to uh, flee Europe and and found a, a homeland in what's now Israel Palestine, starting from there and then going all throughout the the decades, all of these these stories, all of these interpretations of events, that's what you have in your brain. You probably don't have anywhere near as much information, narratives, arguments, evidence, et cetera, that challenge that. And that's for another reason, that once we have uh, a, an understanding of something, we have this encoded in our brains, when we encounter an opposing argument, it actually creates anxiety. Uh, cortisol levels uh, uh, go up in our bloodstream. It's like a stress response. And then the question is, what do you do with that anxiety? Now, rationally, the thing people should do is say, uh-oh, you know, there's the possibility that my understanding is wrong. I had better delve deeply into the evidence so that I can decide which side or which of the many sides is correct. But that, of course, is not what people typically do. Uh, the more common reaction to that feeling of anxiety is, well, this opposing story must be wrong because I know so much that is incompatible with this argument I'm just getting a, a small preview of. Therefore, I can just tune it out. And there's so many ways to tune it out. Uh, you know, oh, well, you know, that that story is is probably coming from Hamas, so it's probably untrue and propaganda. Uh, that story is coming from a, a, a media outlet that I haven't really heard of before, or it's coming from Al Jazeera, and that sounds like a, a very uh, Arabic name, and so they're probably biased, so I don't really have to take this very seriously. Let me uh, look up that same accusation or, or event that this story is about, but find it from a side that doesn't give me a feeling of anxiety. Let me look uh, to see how... Uh, uh, you know, the Washington Post covered that story or what the State Department right. is saying about that event. And that doesn't provoke anxiety. It doesn't seem obviously untrue because in your biased store of information, it's completely in accord with it. So it it seems much more uh, truthy <laughs> to, to use that uh, uh, neologism. Um, so I think that's what, what what's going on. If you get back to the, the your original question, basically stupid or evil, uh, that's coming from a, a Daily Show uh, uh, episode many years ago when they were covering how Fox News uh, covered the building of a mosque, uh, mm -hmm. and they didn't mention the fact that one of the funders was also an owner of Fox News. And so they they asked the question, are these people evil or stupid? Well, 
I have come to the conclusion on, on most of these questions that uh, it's more stupid or rather more accurately, it's more ignorance, but it doesn't really much matter because mm -hmm. ignorance leads to results that you could classify as evil. I just asked this question really briefly of, of uh, uh, Jeffrey Sachs when he was visiting CUHK a few months ago, uh, and he basically came to the, the same conclusion that uh, it's probably more ignorance, but you know, when you get to the results, what does it really matter? To just look at this um, sort of um, Israel-Palestine conflict more broadly and how people in the West, um, you know, especially the likes of uh, US and the UK, um, how they relate to what's going on. How has the media shaped public opinion in the West um, when it comes to Palestine and Israel over the decades? Well, in the U.S., you can see evidence of this by just looking at public opinion polls on questions related to Israel-Palestine. Mm -hmm. And for a, a very long time, um, majorities or at least pluralities of the U.S. public have uh, expressed more sympathy for the Israeli side than the Palestinian side. So that's a, a very clear indication or reflection of the way that the news media is covering this. And you, you can recognize that just deductively. If you don't have uh, friends, family, or, or colleagues who live in the region and are giving you directly, or rather secondhand, uh, information about the region, if you don't actually live there, if you're not working in, in DC in some uh, government agency that, that uh, deals directly with the conflict, your only source of information must be the news media. So if you look at uh, public opinion polls in the US finding uh, more support for the Israeli side than the Palestinian side over many decades, that's a clear media effect. It's a it's an unobtrusive issue. It's an issue that doesn't intrude into your daily life. So you don't learn about it in your daily life. You have to go to the news media to get information about it. I will say, however, that the uh, it, it very well may be down to the internet and the greater variety of uh, narratives, arguments, uh, evidence, et cetera, that you can get on the internet if you so use it. But uh, the the poll showing that majorities of uh, the U.S. population uh, support a ceasefire, even though the the predominant media uh, sort of narrative is that a ceasefire would only benefit Hamas, which is, of course, the, the U.S. government and Israeli government line. The fact that that argument hasn't persuaded a majority of the U.S. public suggests that the, uh, the 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 influence of the uh, mass media outlets has been diminished somewhat through the the greater availability of different narratives available on the internet. Peter, do you think people in the West now this could be journalists, politicians, think tank people, opinion makers, so on and so forth, right? Do you think they have a different relationship with colonialism than people in the global South? Take, for example, Ezra Klein, who's a New York Times columnist, uh, runs a highly successful podcast. Um, if you look at the way he discusses domestic US politics and cultural topics, he comes off as someone who's highly progressive. He's a great journalist, good perspective, can learn a lot, etc. But honestly, I was frankly shocked listening to some of his views on the Israel-Palestine conflict. 
it's not that he's, you know, pro-ethnic cleansing or pro-violence or pro-subjugation of a people in a in a very um, overt sense. Of, of course not, you know, he, not at all. It, but here's the thing, right? Um, in one of the episodes, he even says something along the lines of, you know, I don't buy into the whole settler colonialism concept and argument because what even is that, you know, all nations are formed through some sort of, you know, some manner of war and bloodshed and, and so on and so forth. Now, and, and you can see this, this sort of train of thought in many well-intended journalists in the US and the UK. They struggle to grasp what's been happening in Palestine since 1948. They struggle to see it as something that is just completely morally, ethically wrong and oppressive. Um, or, you know, they struggle to see that an occupying force has no right to, quote-unquote, defend itself against the people it is occupying. Do you think it is this this sort of perspective, this lopsided perspective that they have, um, is because they grew up in countries that have historically been dominant empires, which did the colonizing rather than be the victims on the receiving end of colonialism? I, I think that's a, a very strong hypothesis uh, because, you know, if you look at, at the, the country in, in Europe that probably has the, the most expressed sympathy for the Palestinian side, it's also the country in, in uh, Europe that was colonized first by right. another European country. So I think that hypothesis has a lot going for it. Um, and I think you could extend that um, to the to an analysis of the kind of uh, flippant or or casual attitude that you see in the the U.S. mass media about bombing other countries, uh, the U.S. never experienced a massive aerial bombardment. You know the this modern form of industrialized warfare that a lot of the the rest of the world, including even in Europe, has uh, experienced most dreadfully. So I think that in in that case that is a, a the prime uh, uh, you know candidate for an explanation of why there is this kind of casual attitude to bombing other countries in the U.S. And I think that also goes probably a very long way to explain why uh, you know people in the U.S. mass media like Klein have such difficulty with uh, recognizing the the kind of Israeli project or the Zionist rather project as an exercise in settler colonialism, as a lot of, you know, early uh, Zionist leaders explicitly recognized it as such. Um, but I think for, especially for people on the liberal side of the U.S. political spectrum, there's been enough uh, sort of movement in a, in a civilized direction, I, I could say, uh, that is recognizing settler colonialism as an evil. Um, so, you know, they can recognize that as you know, settler colonialism in the U.S. perspective, in the U.S. context, was an, a historical evil. Settler colonialism in the Australian uh, 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 past, they can recognize as an evil. That's kind of widely appreciated, I, I would say, now within liberal circles. So if they already have this, this negative connotation to settler colonialism, when it comes to thinking about settler colonialism in the context of Israel-Palestine, uh, since they're already likely to be more uh, on the Israeli government side, 
it creates cognitive dissonance to start analyzing uh, the Israeli government as a, a outgrowth or an example of settler colonialism. So then they have to find some out, some some exception to to, to distance those two. I think for for journalists and you know uh, think tank uh, members etc. who are on the the right, they think that we're an we are the empire. Uh, what we say goes. It doesn't matter if the rest of the world uh, complains at the UN. It's just irrelevant. But for the more liberal end of the spectrum, um, my best guess is that they simply. Uh, ignore this. Um, another great example of the kind of lopsided vote you just mentioned is every few years, the United Nations General Assembly uh, condemns the U.S. embargo on Cuba. Right. And it's, again, you know, the entire rest of the world versus two or three, if they can arm twist, you know, Palau or, or you know, some small uh, country into into taking their side. But most of the time they can't even twist arms to, to get that done. Um <laughs> There was a time in in uh, U.S. ruling circles uh, where the the idea of a quote decent respect for the opinions of mankind was taken seriously. That language is a quote from the Declaration of Independence uh, from the U.S. Uh, but that has certainly gone by the wayside uh, since the the U.S. became a, a global empire. And I think for the, the people on the liberal side, I mean, it's very easy to ignore these these U.N. General Assembly votes because they don't get uh, front page major uh, sustained coverage. You'd have to actually look into it and then start thinking critically uh, about it. It's not something that's going to be forced into your consciousness. And then you're going to have to try to come up with some reason, you know, why these lopsided votes uh, uh, happen. And then, at least in the uh, in Israeli society, these kinds of of lopsided votes fit right into the the siege mentality, which I brought up uh, before. Uh, the siege mentality, remember, is the the a widespread belief in any society that the rest of the world harbors negative behavioral intentions towards you to the to the in group. So these kinds of lopsided votes can be interpreted and understood as yet another uh, bit of evidence that the rest of the world largely hates Jewish people because of their ethnicity. And perhaps that that way of thinking uh, is communicated and, and spread uh, from members of the Israeli government or society to their counterparts uh, in the U.S. media system. That's possible. Um, but I think the, the the major explanation is just that they don't get a lot of attention. They're not considered to be uh, major stories. There aren't a lot of, you know, uh, op-eds written to try to explain why it is that the U.S. is is uh, such an outlier in terms of, you know, the rest of the world's thinking. And certainly there's there's no decent respect for the opinions of mankind uh, represented at the in the mass media system of the U.S. overall. So here's the good news. Regardless of Western mass media's framing um, of this whole conflict, um, let alone what happened, um, you know, since the ICJ's ruling and, and uh, so on and so forth, protests are continuing um, in solidarity with Palestine, whether it's in the US, the UK, France, countries in the Middle East, Southeast Asia, people are taking to the streets in the tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands how do you interpret this global support? Um, you know, unions are coming together, um, people of various causes coming together to support Palestine. 
people um, in most parts of the world are starting to see the U.S. Um, for what it is, um, you know, something that people like Noam Chomsky and, and so on has been talking about for, for decades and decades and decades. Uh, I'm wondering, what does this mean for the U.S. empire? What does this mean for their relationships uh, relationship with Israel? Good question. Going back to that original comment I made about the ICJ and international law in general, because it has no enforcement mechanism, it's only about soft power. Its only uh, force is in the form of the beliefs, understandings, opinions, et cetera, that it can influence in the minds of people around the world. And then the resulting pressure of public opinion on government action around the world. So to answer that question, it really comes down to uh, what will the, the, the final effect of the ICJ ruling be in public opinion terms around the world? Um, now, I've been you know, focused mostly just on the, the, the U.S. mass media to a lesser extent, uh, some English language media in Europe. Um, but, you know, they you, you may even there in those locations have enough people getting uh, information that is accurate about the ruling from uh, various Internet sources or perhaps even the, the, the speeches or statements of uh, government officials. Um, in the, the the majority of the world, uh, I haven't seen uh, the kind of general tenor of, of coverage. I would hope that it's uh, less duplicitous, uh, more accurate than uh, what I've seen in, in my country's media system. Um, but if it does have the effect of correctly informing people that the uh, highest authority on the, the uh, crime of genocide in international law has provisionally ruled that there is a prima facie case that genocide is, is being committed by the Israeli government in Gaza right now. And then that uh, uh, pushes people to put pressure on their governments to, in turn, put pressure on the Israeli and U.S. and perhaps even uh, European governments to take concrete actions that would actually end the genocide. If that happens, then you know, you'd know you have a, a very significant impact of the ICJ decision. If, however, the decision is not communicated accurately, if it doesn't become uh, a spur to, to public uh, opinion to put pressure on their governments to take action, then it would just be you know a bunch of words on pages. Uh, so the, the ultimate impact uh, remains to be seen, but you could envisage a scenario in which uh, enough of the, the world's people uh, recognize that the best, the highest authority in international law on the question of genocide has said that there is a plausible case for genocide occurring, then put uh, even more pressure on their governments to put pressure on the Israeli and U.S. governments, then you could see uh, the calculus change for the U.S. and Israeli governments. And then, you know, you might see them basically pressured into ceasing uh, the assault. Um, of course, it could go uh, the opposite way if there isn't enough uh, uh, sort of outrage and public opinion around the world. But, you know, this will be determined essentially by what people believe, what public opinion is as a result of this decision. Peter, on that note, thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure, Dashram. That was Assistant Professor Peter Beatty, political economist and political psychologist at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. If you missed any part of this conversation, you can also check us out on podcasts. We're available on the BFM app, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Dashan Johan, and this has been Beyond the Ballot Box, BFM 89.9.
89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, the business station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.